0: You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. So I'm going to start this sermon off in a little bit of a different way than I usually do. So I, I um, used to be very active in this large online theology Facebook discussion group. And because of that, I will occasionally get a message or an email from someone asking me to explain a passage or they've heard a particular challenge to a doctrine and they're looking for me to help them understand how to respond to it. And I always tell them the same thing. I always say to them, read a little bit more. So they'll, they'll, call me, they'll email me and they'll say... This Roman Catholic um, brought up this verse arguing against justification by faith alone, and maybe it's James 2.24, which we've already talked about. And I'll say to them, well, just read a little bit more. And it's almost always the case that when you just read a little bit more of the Scripture, you read maybe a chapter ahead and a chapter behind, or sometimes it's not even that much, the answer of what the Scripture is actually saying becomes pretty clear. You don't have to go to seminary or have an advanced theology degree to understand the basics of what the Bible is saying. Now, obviously, I'm a big fan of academics and education, so I'm not saying that those things are not valuable, but the Scripture was written, the the New Testament especially, was written predominantly for someone to read them out loud to a congregation and for the people in the congregation to understand what is being said. So we're coming to a phase in the book of James here, where a lot of the themes from earlier in the book are starting to kind of pay out. So I mentioned last week that in the beginning of the book of James, he presents almost like a table of contents. In that first chapter, he refers to a subject, and then he goes on to the next subject, he goes on to the next subject, and then he goes sort of in that same order throughout the book to expand on them. And it reminds me a little bit, um, I'm, a, I'm a pretty big fan of stand-up comedy, Although it's hard to find stand-up comedy, that's appropriate for Christians to listen to these days. Um, But I'm a a fan of good stand-up comedy when I can find it. And one of my favorite things about a good stand-up comedian is how early on in the show, they'll sort of plant this seed for a joke. It's like a throwaway line or a little story or an element of something. And then later on in the show, usually towards the end, there's this big payoff when they refer back to that joke or that line or sometimes just one word and it gets a big laugh. It's kind of the, the culmination of the whole thing. And this section of James, even though it's very short, has a lot of that same kind of payoff where he'll pick a particular word that ties back to a concept from earlier, and it sort of opens up the whole thing to us. And now we're reading in English, and some of the way that this has to be translated, you don't get that sense. But when you were if you were reading or listening to this in its original Greek, the sort of verbal parallels just pop right off the page. So it would be like if I was giving you a lecture about discipleship and I planted early on somewhere that the root word for disciple and discipline was the same. And then later on, I brought it up and I had some kind of pithy phrase where I said, you can't have discipleship without discipline. You can hear how those verbal roots connect with each other. James does a lot of that in this passage. It was actually surprising to me in this passage how much he does that. So uh, this is a little bit unorthodox for us, but I'm actually going to read the entire book of James from where we started in verse 1 to where we are now, just so you have that all fresh in your memory as we start to kind of jump back into the book of James. So um, I'm reading from James um, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations... Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea. Blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like the wild flower. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away, even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry for man's anger does not produce righteous life and that God desires. Therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to that word. And so deceive yourself, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on the tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones slandering you, uh, slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In this same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal All kinds of animals, birds and reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, There you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So this this short section here is a sort of a continuation or maybe like a midpoint summary of what James has said already. So as I mentioned briefly last week, this is sort of a pivot point in the, the um, letter here. James starts off with kind of more hypothetical situations, more doctrinal content, and he very quickly now turns over to be very confrontational. He's addressing something directly that is happening in the congregation and in the people that he's writing to. So it gets to be a little bit um, aggressive at points. And I think it's worth noting that because we we often read the book of James and sometimes if we're not careful, we can feel a little bit beat up. Um, And that's actually okay because sometimes the scriptures need to beat us up a little bit. So we're going to lean into that a little bit. This this, um, message is a little bit heavy on the law um, and that's by design, Um, but we always have to keep in mind the gospel because even though we often feel like we're being pressed down under the law, and it's crushing us, the fact is that it already crushed Jesus Christ for us. And so it's not there to hurt us. It's not there to condemn us. The law is now there to show us what it means to be righteous and show us what it means to live like Jesus Christ, who already saved us. So we see that in in previous sections here, as we just read, he spoke about good works, revealing the nature of our faith. Last week, we explored a specific example of how the way we speak and think and act towards other people reveals the true nature of our character. And this week, James is kind of continuing that line of thought by talking about and showing that the the way that wisdom sort of manifests in action, the way that wisdom exists reveals the nature of that wisdom. Um, We've been jumping back and forth into the Gospels because we, we, uh, we talked about how James and Jesus obviously grew up in the same cultural milieu. They were brothers. And so a lot of the teaching that we see in James is very closely reflected in Jesus's ministry. And we know from the Bible that at the time of Jesus's ministry, James and his brothers were not followers of Jesus. So we have a couple options. Either James went back and he, after the gospels were preached or as he listened to the apostles, he picked up this teaching. And certainly a, a viable option. I think a more likely option is actually that the the wisdom that was present in the old testament and how it was articulated in the upbringing of jesus and the upbringing of james that that actually shaped what james and jesus learned and understood what the bible taught what the old testament taught so for example in matthew chapter 11 verse 19 there's a scene where the pharisees come and they kind of they're kind of getting after jesus because john's disciples fast and his disciples don't fast and so he says here kind of as a retort in, in verse 19, he says, the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved by her action. So wisdom in this, um, this teaching is understood almost as a person. It comes from Proverbs chapter eight, where wisdom is sort of described as this woman and has all these different characteristics. Wisdom is seen here as a person and the, um, The truth of the wisdom, the truth of her actions is proven by the outcome. Um, In the, the gospel of Luke, it's recorded a little bit differently. And it says wisdom is justified by her children. So the idea is that what wisdom produces is actually proven, is proven to be wisdom by the outcome that happens. So James moves on here and he's talking first about the nature and the origin of the false wisdom. And so we start in verse 13 here, and it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by his good life, by deeds done in humility, what comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny its truth. James is forcing us to take a hard look at ourselves. So when we look at our hearts, we look at our lives, and we find that it's marked by bitterness, selfishness, Maybe it's marked by the sort of slanderous and cursing tongue that we talked about last week. Maybe it's marked by this partiality or this, um, this favoritism where we consider certain people or certain types of people or certain people in positions of authority or power, we consider them to be more valuable than, than people who are not in those positions, especially in, in the community of God. When we think about people that way, when we see that in our life, and we will see that in our lives, we will. James is encouraging us not to be shy about that. To treat it for what it is. It's sin. We shouldn't pretend that it's not. We shouldn't act as though we're perfect. We shouldn't try to cover it up. Because we can't address those things and deal with those if we're in denial about them. So we have to grapple with, that truth of the human condition and with our condition, particularly, we have to grapple with that seriously. He says that the wisdom, which would cause us to paper over these sins, it's worldly, it's unspiritual, meaning it's contrary to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And it's ultimately from Satan. So commentators have noticed that there's a sort of parallel structure to this passage here and, and what we commonly call the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, that there's kind of the fruit of wisdom and the fruit of the Spirit. And um, we have to be careful not to associate those two closely, but it, it's true. There's, there's a wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. And the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit is what we'll talk about in the next section. But what James is saying here is that the kind of wisdom that leads to selfish ambition, to division, and for us to act as though that's okay, That's coming from the devil. Think about Adam and Eve. That was a selfish ambition. It was selfish wisdom and envy that caused Eve to be able to be deceived and to ultimately eat the fruit which led to the fall. She saw the fruit. She saw that it was beautiful to the eye and it was good for food and it was useful to make one wise. The serpent told her, if you eat this, you'll be like God. You'll be like God. She was already like God. She was already created in God's image. She was already, along with Adam, one who had dominion over all of the creatures, who was already a a favored servant of the living God. But her selfish ambition to elevate herself, her jealousy of what it is that God had, led her to the fall of us all. And that came from the devil. It wasn't spiritual. It wasn't from above. It was earthly and unspiritual and from the devil. Now, James here says that the people who are marked by this envy and ambition, they're the same double-minded person that we talked about in the first chapter. This is one of those callbacks and you wouldn't see it in the English. But what he says here in verses 5 through 8, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. This is verse, uh, chapter 1 of 5 through 8. He should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Right? Wisdom, ask for wisdom. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. This word, uh, which in chapter 3 is translated as disorder, is the same word that's translated as unstable in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. So he's calling back to that sort of introductory passage to say that the, the unstable man, the man who asks God for something but doesn't really believe that he can give it to him, that man is unstable. He's disordered. This is precisely the opposite of what God wants for his people. He wants us to be settled. He wants us to be stable, grounded in the truth. We also see here in, verse, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, the God himself is described as stable. For God is not a God of disorder, same word, but of peace, uh, as in all the congregations of the saints. God is not a God who is fleeting to and fro, right? He's not a God who's marked by shadows of change, and fickleness. He's marked and and defined as a God who does not change. And we should be a people who are marked not as immutable, not as as rigid and unchanging, we're going to find out later that that's actually not admirable, but as a stable people, because we worship and serve and are transforming more and more into the image of a stable God. That's part of James's point here. The people who claim to be Christians and who are marked by this selfishness and slander and disobedience, they're unstable. That doesn't mean anything different in the first century than when we say that someone is unstable. It's a form of insanity to think that you can somehow trick the omnipotent, omniscient God of the universe by saying some flowery words and then acting like a pagan. It's a form of insanity. And although we all exhibit that form of insanity at times, if our lives are marked by that form of insanity, then we are this double-minded man who should not expect anything from God. James moves on now to talk about the nature and the origin of true wisdom, which is where we'll spend the remainder of our time. He returns to this promise from this first chapter to give wisdom to those who ask in sincerity. So you'll see all of the verbal parallels. This is why I read it. In the first part when he says you should give You should ask God who gives generously without finding fault. He then goes on to say that he is the father of every good gift coming down from heaven. James marks this true wisdom as saying this is the wisdom that comes down from heaven, comes from above. It's given to us by God when we ask if we do not doubt. I've talked about this um, sort of biblical structure called an inclusio in the past. And what an inclusio is, is, is you start a section, then you have sort of the inside portion of the section, then you close the section by repeating either verbatim sometimes or a theme from that first part. It's kind of like a conceptual sandwich. You've got the first part, bread, there's all the fillings, and then there's the second part. That's what James does here. So he marks off this wisdom first as pure. He says that, first of all, it's Pure. And then he closes this section by referring to it as impartial and sincere. So we we have a definition now of what pure means to uh, to James, that pure and impartial and sincere, those are the same concepts in this context. And we saw that earlier. True religion that is considered pure before the father is to take care of orphans and widows, to live life that matches what you say about yourself. That's true religion. You demonstrate your faith by the works you do. You show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith with your works. You see these themes coming through and paying out as we go further into the letter here? Maybe to underscore that point, the word impartial is, uh, comes from a Greek word that really means uncritical. In Greek, you can add this little little letter called an alpha in front of a word, and it makes it the opposite. It's kind of like when we say something is possible versus it's impossible. It's believable versus it's unbelievable. In in English, um, we use in or im or um. In Greek, we use this alpha. And so he uses a word that's uncritical. This is the opposite of the word of the doubting man in verse one through six. So true faith, true wisdom Is contrary to the man who doubts. It's also the same word that's used in uh, what I was calling the sin of partiality. When we look at people and we make judgments based on external categories rather than their status in Christ, it's the same word. And true wisdom is the opposite of that. It's the 100% opposite of that. So if we want to be truly wise rather than looking at the externals, trying to broker power by cozying up to the people with the money or the position of authority. That's, that's not wisdom. That's the wisdom that's from the devil. That's the wisdom that's earthly and unspiritual. The wisdom that comes from above is to recognize that at the foot of the cross, all of the ground is even. Everybody's on the same level. The next word, I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record here, but it's again, a word that is a negation. It's translated as sincere here. It might be a little clearer if we translate it as unhypocritical. Some translations that are trying to be a little bit more um, metaphorical say they don't play a part. The word hypocrite is actually a reference to acting. It's someone who plays a part in a play as a hypocrite. And as that came into the vernacular was someone who plays a part in life, they say one thing, they do another thing. They pretend to be the most dedicated member of the church, but in reality, they're undercutting the pastor by how they speak about him. They pretend to love all people, but as soon as they uh, get to their office at work, they have a million negative things to say about their coworkers. Jesus uses this word. It's probably his favorite insult, uh, if we can call it an insult. In the Gospel of Matthew alone, he calls the Pharisees hypocrites 15 different times. Most of them are in that section called the woes. Woe to you Pharisees and scribes, you hypocrites. This is the person who sees fit to ask God for wisdom, but doubts that it can really come to be. They're playing the part of the person going to the Lord, but they don't actually believe that the Lord cares about them or that the Lord can deliver on his promise. So this is what pure wisdom is. It's a wisdom that does not operate on the basis of uh, ungodly judgment or ungodly criticism. It doesn't operate on a principle of doubt or skepticism. It's a wisdom that comes from and trusts the Lord. It's the faith that James talks about in chapter 2. It's a faith that brings with it good works and good fruit. It's a wisdom that is not just for show. It's the wisdom that doesn't just live in the academy or in the ivory tower. It's a a wisdom that flows out of a heart of faith into practical application every day. Not perfectly, but every day. It's the wisdom that says, I know that God is stable and unchanging, therefore I can trust him. And all of the stuff that comes with that. That when we are concerned about our jobs, when we're concerned about our health, when we feel as though the culture is just waiting for us to say the wrong thing to pounce on us and to summon the mob on Twitter, it's the faith that recognizes that all, of that all of those waves, all of that wind, all of that noise, that God is above that. He's stable. He's not marked by change. That can toss us back and forth. It can't toss God back and forth. And when we ground ourselves on God and we are united to Christ, he makes us into more and more stable people who are not tossed about by those waves and winds. Now, in between this um, wisdom sandwich here, we see various fixings. These are the things that wisdom produces. So if, if the sandwich bread is the definition of wisdom, the fillings here are the, the fruits that it produces. I'm going to go through these quickly because they're, they're relatively straightforward. It says, peace-loving. This is a a word that means characterized by wholeness. We don't love to stir the pot. We don't love to cause fractures and, and to make breaks in the world. We seek to bring people together in the gospel, not to tear them apart in whatever it is that we want to tear them apart with. We're considerate. This is a word that means tolerant. Not tolerant in the Sort of worldly way that our culture uses it. But tolerant as in patient. I've been studying um, Stoic philosophy recently just because it's a, it's a sort of a hobby of mine. Marcus Aurelius, who's known as one of the greatest emperors of the Roman Empire, he says this in his book Meditations, which was really just a journal to himself. He says, Be tolerant with others and strict with yourselves. Now, there are all sorts of biblical passages we could turn to that call out that principle, right? Take the speck out of your own eye before you deal with the, or take the log out of your own eye before you deal with the speck in the other. Don't judge with unjust righteousness or unrighteous judgment. This next word, submissive. This is a different word than what Paul uses when he talks about, you know, servants submitting to their masters or wives submitting to their husbands or children submitting to their, their parents, This is a word that means persuadable and willing to yield. So the wisdom that comes from above is is a wisdom that produces in those who possess it. It produces the willingness to have your mind changed when convinced by the word. When you hold a position so tightly that it is not subject to criticism, it's not subject to revision, that can be a very dangerous place to be. Not not just theologically, but just in general. I think we've seen a lot of that over the last couple years on both sides of every debate that we've seen. People are not willing to consider that the person with a contrary opinion could be right, that we could be wrong. This word is a humbleness. It's a willingness to acknowledge that we are not God and that we don't know everything. These next two are kind of combined This wisdom produces a life that is full of mercy and good fruit. So the wisdom that comes from God, just like the faith that comes from God, will always be accompanied by works that demonstrate it. Wisdom is justified by her children. Faith is justified by works. That means that if we claim to be wise, as James said in the first part of this, if we claim to be wise but our lives are marked by division and envy and sin, then we really are an unstable person. And then lastly in this passage here, and, and we'll, we'll wrap up with this, James makes this statement, and it's a, it's a really weird statement to translate, honestly, in the Greek. And, and when you read different translations and you see really different, um, different renderings of a verse, Sometimes that means that there's like a, a manuscript difference and one one translation favors this manuscript and one translation favors this manuscript and there's actually a difference in the way the manuscripts are. But most often what that means is it's a, it's a phrase that we don't really know how to translate. Um, it's complicated even more by the fact that Greek has different ways to phrase a word and the order doesn't matter as much. So if you think about the example, if I say, Um, I did something for the love of God. Do I mean for my love for God? Do I mean it's God's love for me? Is it the love which God possesses or is it the love I possess for God? The phrase love of God, even in English, is ambiguous. This phrase is like this. So we have to be careful when we run into those, not to hang our hats too tough on it. But what most of the, History of the Church, who's commented on this, agrees is that this statement means that those who are marked by wholeness, by peace, they will sow in a way that reaps a harvest of righteousness. This is not talking about meriting salvation. Sometimes this gets used by um, those who want to advocate for a, a form of works righteousness to say, well, if you sow peace, then you reap righteousness meaning that if we're peaceful people, if we live a life of peace, that somehow accrues to us merit. Somehow that earns us either salvation itself or sometimes it earns us a more favorable place in heaven, something like that. Um, This is also a common verse that's taken out of context by those who want to argue for what's called the social gospel or something like that, where salvation in the gospel is really about transforming our world. That's not what this passage is saying. What it's saying is that when we operate in a way that is marked by the peace of God, that is how we operate, and that is what brings about these, this steadfastness and this perfection in James 1. It's not speaking of meriting salvation. That's not the righteousness it's talking about. We might talk about that as justification. It's not meriting our justification not changing our legal status before God, but what it is, is it's working to bring about the perfection of our, of our lives. The Holy Spirit brings about our sanctification and our ultimate glorification in a mysterious way, but in a way that is always accompanied by these good works of righteousness. That's what this passage is saying. Turn over real, real, briefly, real briefly with me to Hebrews uh, chapter 12. Now the word peace is used all over the Bible. Um, it's used in a lot of different ways, but this particular form of the word peace uh, is not used commonly. The only other place that I found it in the Bible was in Hebrews chapter twelve, and we're going to read verses seven through fourteen. Actually, I'm going to read. I'm going to read from the beginning of chapter twelve here. consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplining those he loves uh, disciplines, those he loves and punishes everyone. He accepts as a son. Enduring hardship as discipline, God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. See that, that parallel language? What the author of Hebrews here is saying is, when God brings trials into your life, when he brings tough times into your life, sometimes that's a result of sin. I would say that God never punishes those who are in his family, those who trust his son, but he brings about sometimes a chastisement. He lets us learn our lesson by reaping the consequences of our sins. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that that is for your good. If we were to give James the letter of Hebrews, he would say, yeah, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials and of every kind. For by those trials, we produce steadfastness, and steadfastness has the effect of producing righteousness and perfection. I can't prove it, but I actually think that James probably had access to whoever this person is who wrote Hebrews. They probably ran in similar circles. And this phrase here is so similar. This discipline produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That word peace is the same peace. It's the only time in the New Testament that I found that the same exact form of the word is used. And it's right next to harvest of righteousness. So we need to understand that the purpose of this wisdom that comes from above is not to give us some sort of knowledge that helps us escape from tough times or helps us escape from trials. It's to make us into the kind of people who look like Jesus Christ, who live like Jesus Christ, who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of our union with Christ in all of those things, it produces fruit and a harvest of righteousness. The world will see that. I'm not one of those people that says that we should just live our lives and, you know, preach the gospel at all times, use words as necessary. I think that that's a nonsense statement. The gospel is words. We preach the word of the Lord, not the deeds of ourselves. But that doesn't mean that people won't take notice. When, just to speak from my own personal, very recent experience, when the layoffs come and you're the only person who's not losing their minds and panicking, people take notice of that. And when they ask you, and when they asked me on Thursday, when layoffs happened at DHMC and none of us saw it coming, when they asked me, I said, I don't know. I mean, this is not the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen is to not be saved, to die and perish. Everything else is just just a trial. It's just something I got to get through. That's what we're talking about. That's the wisdom that comes from above. That's the wisdom that the man who does not doubt receives from the Lord when they ask him because the Lord will give it generously. Let's pray. Father, you are the father of lights. Every good gift comes from you, and we thank you that you have provided us with wisdom and faith and trust in your son, and that you have given us the word which teaches us and shows us not only who you are, not only how to worship you and, and to know true things about you, but how we ought to live our lives in a way that reflects you and honors you and glorifies you and brings many sons to glory. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.